I'm Father Mitch Packer, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we will already start looking toward our preparations for Lent, which begins on March 2nd for the Roman Rite this year. And by looking at a little bit of the history of the spiritual discipline of fasting, how we can learn that fasting is a lot more about the heart than it is about the palate or the stomach. We'll also take a look at how the decline of fasting, especially in wealthy nations, if not to say overweight nations like our own, has proven to be spiritually disastrous. Before we get to talking about fasting, we want to feast our eyes on a brand new program that's coming to EWTN about Venerable Father Nelson Baker. To help us with that, EWTN's John Nelson Elson is here to tell us about Father Nelson. <laughs> John, Good to be with you, I got to get all these consonants <laughs> correct here. Elson on Nelson. Go ahead. What do you got on Father Nelson? Father, it's always good to be with you. I wanted to let our audience know that next Wednesday, February 16th at 11.30 a.m. Eastern and 11 p.m. Eastern, as you mentioned, we'll be debuting a new episode of They Might Be Saints dedicated to Venerable Father Nelson Baker. Father Nelson was born in Buffalo, New York in 1842 to a Lutheran father and a Catholic mother. At the age of nine, uh, the young Nelson discerned that he'd like to be a Catholic, converted to the faith. Uh, years later, fought uh, for the Union Army uh, during the Civil War and saw action uh, in the Battle of Gettysburg. After his military, after the end of the war and his military career, he was able to become very proficient in business thanks to his father, who was a, a great businessman. And while he was on a business trip, he saw two young orphans with a heavy sack and he talked to them, realized that they were living in the St. Joseph's uh, Orphanage in Limestone Hill. And after speaking with the priest rector, uh, superintendent of that orphanage, uh, discerned a, a calling to the priesthood. Uh, while uh, in seminary, he and a, a small group of seminarians were able to travel to Europe to visit the great shrines throughout Europe. And the one uh, shrine that caught his attention the most was the Shrine of Our Lady of Victory in Paris, France. Mm -hmm. And as we know, Our Lady of Victory is the title given to Our Lady in commemoration of the miraculous victory of the Catholic uh, naval fleet against the Ottoman Turkish fleet in the naval battle of Lepanto mm -hmm. in 1571 in an area that now is south of, of Greece. So after he was ordained a priest, a few years later he became the superintendent of the very orphanage that he had discovered as a young man and realized that, he had that the orphanage had acquired a, a great amount of debt. He emptied his entire bank account to pay off uh, a lot of that debt and over the years, uh, bit by bit, through the patronage of Our Lady of Victory, who, uh, who, uh, with, uh, who had, he, he had placed himself under her patronage in Paris, began to create bit by bit what has been called and what has become a city of charity. So not only did he have the orphanage, but he also created a home for unwed mothers, an infant home, a hospital, elementary school, high school, and an amazingly uh, beautiful minor basilica. Uh, which uh, he uh, was able to create, uh, build, and sustain all the other uh, apostolic works 
uh, by being the first person to uh, practice uh, nonprofit solicitation. So every night he'd write letters to people uh, within the country and around the world asking for support. So I, Father Nelson is, is an amazing figure. And if he felt in faith that something needed to happen, he would not be deterred. And he always said that if he felt that something, he would never allow something that should be done or could be done to be undone. And so later in life when he was thanked by many people for all that he had done, he said, I didn't do anything, she did it, speaking of Our Lady of Victory. Mm -hmm. So he's a man of a tremendous example for us of a man of generosity uh, who, and a man of great empathy. So we're really delighted to bring this program to our audience. Well, and that's going to be on Wednesday, February 16th right. at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time and repeated at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. That's right. Also, if people want, they can go anytime they wish to ondemand.ewtn.com. Ondemand.ewtn.com. Thank you, John. Thank you, Father. Appreciate that. Thank I've you. heard about this, Father Nelson, for quite a number of years, and people were saying that his cause should be promoted. So we'll see how this goes. Right. Thank you. All right, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with tonight's guests, so please stay with us. Right, welcome back. Our guest tonight is a very familiar face to our audience. He's a good friend of the network and a very good friend of mine. He's written countless books on the faith, but he has a brand new release, and it is the first cookbook that he's been connected with. Matter of fact, I don't ever recall connecting him with any kind of cooking, uh, yet alone a whole book about it. But We'll let his wife, Kimberly, and the rest of the Han family pass judgment on his ability to cook. Fortunately for all of us, he left the recipes and cooking duties to an acclaimed chef and a former Swiss Guard member, who is David Geiser. And David Geiser gave us the recipes for this book, but our guest gave some wonderfully significant essays to a book called The Lenten Cookbook. So tonight, we're going to start preparing for Lent by talking primarily about fasting, what it does and doesn't do for us in our spiritual and physical lives, and the reasons we change our thinking about how we approach food and a number of other things during the 40 days before Easter. Please welcome Dr. Scott Hahn. Scott, how the heaven are you? Oh, I'm doing very well. It's great to see you, Father Good Mitch, especially here in our studios at the St. Paul Center. I do miss coming down to visit you in Birmingham, yeah. especially in the wintertime where we just survived <laughs> ice storms and sleet and snow days and all of the rest, so. Well, then I shouldn't tell you how I, just uh, on a Monday I saw 
my first jonquil in full bloom. I won't mention that. You just did. <laughs> <laughs> like Cicero, we'll pass over in silence the flowering that's going on down here. <laughs> We're doing well. Oh, that's good. Well, hopefully, well, this is, you know, everybody's worried about global warming. This is a taste of what its reduction will look like. So you have these great essays for a cookbook. Um, you know, I, I, I've not been part of any cookbook. You, this is not your strongest suit uh, of writing cookbooks, is it? No, first, let me alleviate everyone's anxiety. There isn't a single recipe in this book that comes from me. Uh, th this would not sell. People would not survive that. <laughs> Kimberly has great recipes, but we don't include hers. But as you mentioned, this former Swiss guard, David Geiser, who wrote the Christmas cookbook as well as a Vatican cookbook, and these have been bestsellers, but they've also done a lot of good for a lot of families. And so oh, yeah. I was really pleased when Charlie McKinney of Sophia approached me about supplying essays to supplement this uh, Lenten cookbook. And uh, though I've never met the uh, the chef, I have heard so many good things that uh, I recognize, too, that when I got the invitation to supply some essays that deal with Lent and spiritual discipline, this is something I need, and maybe others will benefit from it as well. And just so folks know, I I've, I've, uh, haven't tried cooking any of these yet, but I tell you what, the recipes look fascinating. They really, really do. Um, things like um, uh, cottage cheese frittatas, well, which is sort of a, an omelet with cucumber radish dip. And that just sounds absolutely fascinating um, and with a wide variety of others, um, not to mention, uh, you know, things that like octopus with vegetable puree. I like octopus. I really do. Um, it, it's when it's done right, it's really good. So, but then there are desserts like hot cross buns. So, all of that is in there. So you can have a Lenten uh, fare that's very delicious, but also not with meat. It's it's meatless meals that are healthy, tasty and fun to make. But you did, like you say, you did not do the recipes. No. You did the first 60-some uh, uh, page, about 60, 70 pages of essays. Right. And your essays were also a, a real spiritual nourishment. You talk about some issues on fasting that are in abeyance in, uh, in the United States and much of Western Europe. People are not fasting. I hear people say, I don't want to give up anything for Lent. I'd rather do something positive. Now, you have some comments on people fasting and giving things up. Why don't we start with that? Well, good. I, uh, I think it's important to recognize that Lent is a time of discipline, but it's not simply a time of self-denial. And, and so when we think of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount about almsgiving and prayer, 
he also adds fasting. So it's not primarily what we're doing without, but what we're going to be doing instead in giving alms. And likewise, in the early church, you find that sometimes fasting was done not only to make prayer more sacrificial and fervent, but also to provide food for other people who were in need. Right. So it's never an either or, it's a both and. But it's it's time for us as Catholics to kind of rediscover the joy of Lent. You know, it's interesting that when St. Benedict put together his rule, the only time joy is mentioned in the rule of St. Benedict is when he speaks of the joy of Lent. Now, we usually associate Lent with the kind of dour mortifications that begin with Ash Wednesday, when in fact there is a sense in which Jesus, for the joy set before him, endures the cross and despises the shame and undergoes all of these trials for our salvation. And so it isn't just one or the other. There is a certain rhythm to fasting and then feasting. We have that in Advent leading up to Christmas, and obviously we have that now coming up in Lent leading up to our Easter celebration. But this is something that is true for all civilizations, for all religions. The, the need that we have to discipline the body and its appetites, uh, it's not the same thing as diet and exercise so you have a slim figure, but it is something essential to growing in human virtue. And so we have examples that are not biblical, that are not Jewish, that are not Christian. Aristotle speaks of it, for example, in the benefits in growing in virtue. But what we have in the Word of God is something that I think beckons us to recognize that if we're going to identify ourselves with Christ, <laughs> like he identified himself with us, that's going to include, well, it might not include going out to the desert to fast for 40 days and nights, like our Lord did. But I mean, Moses did that, Elijah on his trip to Horeb as well. But you have even pagans like the king of Nineveh recognizing the need to express repentance in more than words and warm, fuzzy feelings. And so the very fact that the king of Nineveh calls for a fast in response to Jonah's preaching and brings grace and mercy down upon his people, it's a sign for us that if we want our culture to undergo change for the better, I think prayer it needs to be coupled with fasting. And especially as we approach this season of Lent, I mean, going back to the first three or four centuries, it wasn't really until 325 at the Council of Nicaea when we get the creed, but we also get Lent. And what was happening there is, of course, the bishops were recognizing that in different times and in different places, there were different disciplines. But generally speaking, there is this widespread recognition that just as the Pharisees fasted on, say, Tuesday and Thursday, twice a week, so Wednesday and Friday, when Judas betrays, when Jesus dies, you know, this sort of spiritual discipline is part and parcel of how the church is spreading and how the faith is lived and by 325, this practice becomes practically universal. And so the only question is, well, when do we celebrate Easter? And of course, that's what St. Athanasius supplies with the festal letters that are sent out. And how do we prepare for Easter? And this is where we have the Lenten disciplines, especially with Ash Wednesday and fasting and so forth. And we're off to the, we're off to the races because I think it's time now in the 21st century, for us to get over the post-conciliar hang-up that people had. You know, Vatican II ended, as you know, in 65, and then in 1966, Pope Paul VI issued this apostolic constitution, Penitamini. 
And, you know, he was addressing the fact that prior to Vatican II, you know, these kinds of disciplines, fasting and all of that, these were imposed upon the lay people who had a certain amount of dread and it was law. And so it was considered somewhat authoritarian or legalistic. Now, in the spirit of Vatican II, in an evangelistic sort of way, we want to rediscover the joy of spiritual discipline. And so he let it he basically gave it over to the Episcopal conferences in different locations in the third world and the first world and said, let the bishops decide. Well, how was that message received? Basically, what? We can eat meat on Fridays, you know, and, and practically all of these Lenten disciplines were sort of, you know, released, you know. And so I think what we have to recognize is that if you actually sit down and read Penitamini, from Paul VI, there's a whole lot of wisdom there. And at the same time, it's saying, let's just not do this out of a, a minimalistic spirit. Let's do this out of an evangelical spirit. But it's taken us 50 years, I think, for us to wake up and realize, okay, if it isn't going to be rigidly enforced, it doesn't mean that we're all released from the spiritual disciplines that we need if we're going to become saints. And so, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, patristic, medieval, this is who we are as Christians. You know, one of the points of changing the discipline uh, was uh, something I actually heard from some Catholics back in the, the, those days that, well, it's Friday, we have to give up meat, so I'll go have lobster Newburg. No, that really wasn't the tone in which we're supposed to abstain from meat, um, the, the, to have a very luxurious meal of lobster. Um, there was something, uh, you know, about absence. And, you know, in this country, I think it was less clear than in England. But in Great Britain, it's under pain of mortal sin that you must abstain from something. Now, for some people, it might be abstaining from cigarettes, which for those who are smokers, that can be very, very difficult. And they, had, they didn't tell you what it was you had to abstain from, but you had to do some form of abstinence every Friday, not just the Fridays in Lent. And you know, this was something missed in the message here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, what you see is the loss of Catholic identity expressed publicly, visibly, you know. Yeah. Uh, and okay, maybe it was legalistic before Vatican II. We won't debate that. We certainly won't resolve it. But the fact is that there is a, a devangelization that occurs for many Catholics who are increasingly secularized. But for decades now, we've been hearing about the new evangelization and the need to re-evangelize those who have been de-Christianized. This is a project that I've been working on for many years, and this is an aspect of it because when you see the early church growing in pagan cultures, not just Rome, but in Persia and elsewhere, you see a subculture that is growing and flourishing and converting pagans in a way that's surprising because they basically see all of life redeemed. The incarnation shows us that there is a physical side to being spiritual. It's not all the soul. We're not just angels. We, 
we have bodies. And so there's a physical side to also becoming saints. And when you recognize that fasting magnifies the power of prayer precisely by coupling it with this physical act of faith, which is self-denial, you know, abstinence, fasting, and that sort of thing, there is an intensification. I mean, even the Greek philosopher Aristotle recognized how essential fasting would be, not just to kind of be a philosophical elite, but just to be a person of virtue. And, and again, this is done around the world, it's universal, but for us as Christians, it really means, look, if Christ, the Son of God, identifies himself with us in our trials and our sufferings and our death, then we ought to be willing, we ought to be happy to identify ourselves with him through a voluntary style of mortification in order to create that rhythm of life that families need, that cultures need, and that is fasting before feasting. You know, as Jesus says in the Gospels, you don't fast while the bridegroom is with is with you, you know. Uh, and this is in response to the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples wondering why you're not having your disciples fast. Well, it is a rather cryptic response to a pretty good question. What do you mean while the bridegroom is with? Well, we know from Scripture that the Messiah is going to be the bridegroom and Christ is there. But this translates out in terms of spiritual life that in preparation for the Mass, we fast. It might be overnight. It might be three hours. Nowadays, it's been relaxed so much, it's like an hour before Holy Communion. But we don't need to be minimalists who are reductionistic in terms of our spiritual discipline. But when we go to Mass, when we receive Holy Communion, who is that? Well, it's Jesus, who is he, the bridegroom. And so what are we doing? We're feasting spiritually, but in order to prepare to really appreciate that and to receive the grace, fasting is something utterly appropriate. And as you said, not just in Lent, but every Friday, a Friday was understood to be a kind of mini Lent. And so one meal, preferably midday, you know, and these sorts of things were much more widespread, and I must admit, much more rigorous, because it wasn't just, well, we don't have meat on Fridays, we have fish. No, it was flesh. And so throughout the East and the West, it was meat, it was fish, it was also milk, dairy products, but it was also wine and, you know, a wider range of self-denial that ends up, I think, creating a much more serious way of living the Christian life. Yeah, e even uh, in the Eastern Church, you, you don't eat any milk products like cheese right. and yogurt uh, or milk, and you don't eat uh, uh, oil, uh, even olive right. oil. It's, it's something, as you bring up in your essays, it's a dry fast, that is, without That's meat, right. without oil, without uh, milk products. And you, you can still get protein from things like beans and lentils, various legumes. Uh, that's f accepted uh, and normal. You know, for instance, uh, Lebanese uh, throughout Lent eat mjadra. Mjadra is a combination of rice and lentils uh, and, and sort of a, a, a soup or stew. Um, and people throughout the uh, Christian world have these special recipes for this kind of season. Um, I don't think we should omit another element, which is that you know, people say, well, why fast from food? 
Uh, think about this very important point. The original sin came through eating. They ate, Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this fasting ought to be seen as something of an undoing of that. That's why I think the prophet Joel says so well in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. And in this returning to me with fasting, it's the undoing of departing from the Lord by eating that which God had forbidden. Seeing it as part of this undoing of the disobedience of Adam and Eve is uh, by fasting when they sin through eating is not a bad perspective to gain. That's right. You go back, as you know, to Genesis 3, and you see our first parents tempted and they fall. And when you look at the description of the fruit that was forbidden there on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's described in terms of, well, it's a delight to the eyes, it's desirable to make one wise, and it tastes good. And then later on, you have in 1 John 2, a description of what we call concupiscence. And it speaks about, you know, this threefold concupiscence being the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, as well as the eyes. And so it's money, sex, and power for us today. But likewise, when you look at how Jesus begins to undo the fall, you know, after his baptism, he goes out into the desert where he undergoes this period of 40 days of fasting like Moses and Elijah, but he also undergoes these temptations from the devil. There are three of them, and all three times he responds by citing scripture, which is taken from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Why? Because that's where Moses had to correct the Israelites for having failed their test as miserably as Adam did. And so man doesn't live by bread alone. There you go. Again, it's, it has to do with eating and fasting. Every word that pursued the mouth of God, you worship him alone, not that golden calf you made. And likewise, you don't put the Lord your God to the test, especially if he is testing you. And so Jesus in those three responses is basically taking out original sin and concupiscence at its source. And we don't have to get into the, the mysteries of moral and sacred theology to recognize this is sanctified common sense. We all know that when we are seriously in love, we make sacrifices. And if we want to grow a relationship, we do that kind of thing. If we want to help other people, if we want to help ourselves, self-denial. It's the proof that love is more than words and warm, fuzzy feelings. I remember over 20 years ago, I won't go into the details for the sake of discretion, but we had a significant family crisis. And one of my own kids was facing something that we've had throughout the generations in terms of depression. It's sort of an intergenerational burden. And so I, I had fasted according to the church's law before, and I had done some little things besides with my spiritual director and all of that. But then with his permission, I embarked upon something that lasted, well, from Lent 
through Easter, we celebrated, but then for the rest of the year, I continued these spiritual disciplines, and again, with a spiritual director. And after about a year or so, we saw something that could rightly be described as practically miraculous in the life, in the soul, but also in the body of, uh, of my beloved child. And so uh, I have continued that, again, with the Council of Good Spiritual Directors. I'm a, a supernumerary in Opus Dei, and so I get that kind of direction on a weekly, on a regular basis. But I would say that I was surprised at how much grace was released in my own family, but also in my life, so that 20 years later, I still now carry out a lot of what I learned to do back then. And I, I, I sense that there are still ongoing spiritual benefits, but every year I recognize the need to kind of renew the wellspring so that it's not just the same old thing, you know, doing without salt on your eggs or, you know, taking a smaller portion or, you know, letting someone else have seconds and, you know, those minor mortifications. But as we prepare for Lent, we recognize that this really is the way that we enter more more powerfully into the Paschal mystery. Um, and and I, I just, I, I really sense that we are facing a culture that is woke, that is trying to cancel the Catholic faith, and the best defense is a good offense. It's the, it, it's the way that we joyfully live out the fasting and the feasting in a way that sets into motion grace as yeah. a counterforce that will really take out sin at its source, not only in my heart, my home, but also in the neighborhood and the world. We uh, Let's pause there. We have to take a little break, but we'll come sure. back and pick up a little bit more about this, especially in terms of the history, because you spend time going back to the early history of the church on this. So let's uh, come back to some of that in just a couple of minutes. Right, we are discussing a book called The Lenten Cookbook. And the chef who came up with the recipes is David Geiser, a, who used to be a Swiss guard and has written a couple other very fine, best-selling cookbooks. But there are essays by our own friend, Scott Hahn. Um, there are about 75 new, very international Lenten-themed recipes uh, for you to use. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm, I was just looking again. I'm pretty sure I'm going to cook some of these potato pancakes because that was one of the things that my mom would make on uh, Fridays for supper and used to like a lot of that. But also the essays by Scott Hahn tell a lot about the history and meaning of fasting. Now, this book is available at EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog, and it is item number 4696, 4696. So I recommend it. 
that one and the other one I want to try is the ginger soup. I like ginger. It's good for arthritis, you know. So I <laughs> want to try that. Now, Scott, one of the things that you bring up in your essays is that fasting was not some medieval invention. This is mentioned as early as the first century, not only in the Gospels, but also in books like the Didache. First, what is the Didache? Well, let me back up and point out the obvious, and that is at the heart of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you have the instruction in chapter 6. And what is it about? Almsgiving, prayer, and oh yeah, fasting. fasting. So it's not if you fast, it's when you fast. It's not if you give alms, it's when and how you do that, as well as prayer. So picking up right where the Old Testament left off, you you cited Joel 2, you could see in Jonah 3, you can also find in Ezra 8, where this was a real essential part of what it meant to renew our covenant and to get closer to our Lord. But the Didache, one of the earliest documents we have from the first century, some dated to the 60s, others to the 90s, regardless, what's so interesting is that in the first paragraph of the Didache, you have this instruction that is echoing Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. On the one hand, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies. But the third injunction is startling. Fast for those who persecute you. Yes. Well, I found it easy to fast for my family members, maybe my parish, you know, for cultural renewal in the church. But for those who persecute us, well, it goes beyond what St. Stephen does in forgiving when he's getting stoned. He sets into motion through his own discipline and suffering the redemptive graces that will bring about the conversion of Saul and others too. And so the Didache is just simply reminding the readers of what Christians have been doing since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so over the course of the next two or three centuries, you find, again, in the East with the Greeks and also in the West with the Latins, this kind of widespread acceptance of fasting at least twice a week, but also approaching Lent with a certain austerity. In Tesori's book, Fasting, which I cite, you see a diversity or a variety of disciplines, but you also recognize that there is growing unity. But by, by our standards today, you would look and you'd say, as Tesori states, in the early Latin church, all the faithful, clergy and lay people fasted. And when you compare their disciplines to ours, you know, for approximately 40 days, they ate one meal a day. And then after Vespers, and by, you know, by comparison with us, it is serious, austere, and demanding. We're like, well, you know, we don't want religion like that. And yet at the same time, Rodney Stark, the great sociologist of religion, has written a number of books, points out that the more demanding a religion is, not only does it expand, it explodes, it grows, and people have this gut sense that if I'm going to believe in God and think about the next life and live my life here and now for that, you know, in a certain sense, no pain, no gain. And the greater the pain, the greater the gain, not because we're practicing spiritual masochism, but just because we recognize that the rhythm of life in the natural order corresponds to the supernatural order, mm -hmm. no cross, no crown. And so 
if we're going to recognize that Christ didn't suffer and die to exempt us from suffering and death, rather, he suffered and died to endow our meager suffering with a redemptive value, then the common currency of this economy of grace is not just warm, fuzzy feelings we have after a homily. It really is the kind of suffering that we embrace. It can be voluntary, such as Lenten discipline. It can be involuntary, such as the sufferings we're all going to face since death comes to everyone. But in, you know, in the in the grand sweep of what we find in the gospel, in the didache, in the early church, we recognize that this is what it means to become a saint. And if you want to skip over this, well, you know, uh, I have got bad news for you. Uh, Again, no pain, no gain, no cross, no crown is more than religious rhetoric. It is the reality that we all are called to because, let's face it, the mortality rate is still 100%. Whether it's COVID or something else, none of us are going to get out of here alive. We're all going to have to suffer. We all face illness. We all face death. The cross didn't exempt us. Rather, it endows all of that with a form of grace, and especially when we do undertake it voluntarily, not just to lose weight as a spiritual diet, you know, in an opportunistic way, we'll combine Lent with, you know, getting my figure ready for a bathing suit this summer. No, it's a matter of the heart, it's not the belly, you know, or the waist. And if we get that right, it's going to also lead to physical hygiene and good health. But in a certain sense, the tail doesn't wag the dog. And so if we put the spirit over the material, we're not dualists pitting the soul against the body. We just recognize that there's a hierarchy. And and so if the soul is going to practice prayer, the body has to discover that there's a physical side to being spiritual. There's a physical side to prayer. And that kind of sacrifice is what we do alone, but it's what we do in the mass. We bow, we kneel, prostrations, we stand, whatever. We just have to recognize that our culture has been influenced, I might say infected, by a kind of dualism that basically leads even Catholics to say, it doesn't really matter what I do with my body, you know, because I'm spiritual. I don't need to be, you know, all of these other things. And yes, we do. You know, we're not angels and we're not just animals. We're really what Aquinas calls the composite, the compound, contrary elements, the soul that is immortal, the body that is mortal. And then we can see how in the incarnation, wow, all of this has been taken to an entirely new level, but it's one that we've got to live out on a daily basis, but also every year and throughout the seasons that give us seasons of grace, but also they set into motion, you know, uh, I have this section on page nine on the golden age of Christendom. And again, this quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, fasting is useful as atoning for and preventing sin, raising the mind to spiritual things. And everyone is bound by the natural dictate of reason to practice fasting as far as it is necessary for these purposes. And we could go on, but from Christ through the Didache, through Nicaea, all the way to the medieval and the modern, it really is time for us to not be ashamed or embarrassed or afraid, but to really a joyful reappropriation of the disciplines of our tradition. And then, you know, I think we'll set into motion the counterforces that are going to de-secularize a culture that is on the brink. But I go on, blah, blah. <laughs> but see, 
You know, one of the things, you know, today is the uh, feast day, so in fact, a holy day of obligation in the Maronite Rite because the feast of St. Maron, the founder, the father of the Maronite Rite. And what was key to his life is that as Christianity was legalized in the Roman Empire under, by Constantine, in 313, it became easier to be a Christian. And the response of a lot of Christians was to go out into the wilderness, as Marin did, to live a life of fasting and prayer. It wasn't just fasting, it was fasting and prayer. And the, uh, he attracted many disciples, and in their fasting and prayer, their great discipline, they began to evangelize the last worshipers of Baal and Ashtarti in the mountains of Lebanon and Syria. They began this, pro and it, whereas the, the Christians that were comfortable in the big cities and living a fairly luxurious life were not able to reach out to these pagans, but the, 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 those who had fasted very seriously had gone out and were very successful in winning them over to Christ. I think that that is partly what we need to look at in our own times. I think you're exactly right, and profoundly so. You know, fasting has always been recognized and practiced as an essential weapon in the spiritual arsenal that we need to conduct spiritual warfare. And again, take it beyond the realm of rhetoric and to recognize that self-renunciation means, okay, we're not going to just simply satisfy all of our bodily appetites. We're going to subdue the flesh by the power of the spirit we're going to become more aware of our weakness. We're going to become more aware of our need for God's grace, but we're going to get not only closer to God, but we're going to get other people closer to God, even people we don't even know. I mean, I remember reading St. Athanasius's Life of Anthony. You know, here's St. Anthony yeah. of the Desert, who is the spiritual father of not only the hermits, but practically speaking, monasticism. And what he experienced, what Athanasius experienced at the Council of Nicaea was this unexpected triumph over the heretic Arius, but he attributes that and many other graces to the fasting and the prayer and the disciplines of St. Anthony and these, uh, and these other hermits. And I mean, the legends, the stories, I think the truths are he was fighting the devil. I mean, he was thrown around the cave uh, and his sufferings gained for us, you know, not something that... He doesn't add to Christ's sufferings. He doesn't subtract from Christ's sufferings. No, Christ is living his life out in the members of his mystical body right. in Athanasius at the council, but in Anthony there in the desert, in the cave where his prayer, his fasting is defeating the devil so that the church can advance and overcome the heresy of Arianism. And, and this is true in every age, even though many of these people haven't had lives written about them like Athanasius wrote about Anthony. But I mean, God knows heaven is, is, is hearing the prayers and the fasting and sending us grace, whether we know the source or not. And 
you know, I, I recognize that I have my limitations in my mid 60s, especially. And so when I approach Lent, I recognize, OK, the church's law about abstinence is from the age of 14 until death. The, the law of fasting is from 21, I think, until the age of 59. Uh, for, uh, but uh, uh, I think it's 14. Uh, in the Roman rite, it's 14 through yeah, 14, 59. 59, yeah. But uh, our, we let our kids do it, you know, when they were eight, nine, or 10. And now that I'm in my 60s, I am going to continue doing it because we need to draw the grace of God down. We also need to subdue the appetites, the emotions, the passions of our own flesh. We also need to set an example that others can learn from and learn from the example of those people who've gone before us who have become saints because you won't become a saint apart from fasting abstinence and entering into these seasons such as Advent and Lent, embracing the penitential aspect. You know, I, again, I, I point out that St. Benedict in his rule speaks of the joy of Lent, but there's also this joy that was rediscovered in secular America. I enjoy telling the story of Irma Rombauer, who was this jet-set high society St. Louis hostess, probably a millionaire in the 20s, and then she was widowed in 1930, and she writes this book that we all know about, but it was a complete experiment. It was called The Joy of Cooking. Now, 90 years later, it sold 18 million copies. It's gone through nine editions. It was Julia Child's inspiration. But what she did was to build a bridge between the high society hostesses who would, you know, provide these banquets to ordinary Americans who never really knew what eating could be like, but I think there's a sense in which prior to Vatican II, going back through the centuries, we associate the austerity of fasting and abstinence with the monks, with the clergy, with the hermits, with the nuns, when in fact, clergy and laity back then and now, we need to enter into these sorts of things. And so just as the joy of cooking made available what used to be only for the elite, I think we have to recognize that ordinary Catholics men and women, husbands and wives, fathers, mothers, you know, neighbors. We need to wake up and really respond to the universal call to holiness that we heard in Vatican II. But it wasn't like Vatican II told us something new. I think there was Jesus who said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, be merciful. And likewise, Leviticus said, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. These aren't options. These are not for the elite. This is the only way we can pass from this life into eternal glory. And so let's get with the program. Yeah, I, I think this is um, an important part of our discipline. And frankly, it stands in really great contrast to the world. Uh, when I watch the news, I see dozens of commercials of how to lose weight without ever being hungry. <laughs> this is one of the themes in this overweight society. And then another compensation that's taking place is now that there is a very widespread obesity and sometimes morbid obesity throughout the culture, instead of calling people at, at a time when this epidemic is especially uh, dangerous to people who are overweight, 
now being overweight is something that is being more celebrated. And, you know, you say, there's something about the unwillingness to experience pain, the unwillingness to give up anything, the unwillingness to abstain and control our appetites and the willingness to eat things that are easy to get but bad for us and just keep doing it. We are being called to be an antidote to these cultural messages. Again, not so that we look thin so we can put on nice swimming suits at the beach. Who cares? Um, The issue is that we are bringing discipline and self-control to our lives as well as not giving in to the um, kind of gluttony that is now part of culture. There are people who identify as foodies, but in another time, they may have been identified as gluttons, um, uh, which is one of the capital sins. This, we're being called to an antidote to a lot of elements of our society and to stand up against them in so many areas. Right. We have to recognize what Israel learned the hard way, and that is moral bondage is the prelude to physical slavery, that the the chains of our own slavery are forged in the bonds of our passions to which we succumb and indulge ourselves. So self-discipline, self-denial that is periodic, there's a regularity to it, it's voluntary, so it's self-imposed, but it also is deliberate for the soul, for the spirit, for God, for conforming our lives to Christ. Again, we cannot fight a war on two or three or 20 fronts, and that's what we're facing today. We really have to begin the war within. And the world, the flesh, and the devil, but it starts with the flesh. And you mentioned earlier, you know, fasting from smoking, cigarettes, you know, I have one of our six kids who has done that and finally overcome smoking. Uh, But it might be the internet, you know, it might be television, it might be any one of a number of luxuries that are licit, morally speaking, but dangerous for us personally. Mm -hmm. And once again, we recognize that religion is not something done exclusively by ourselves privately. We're social animals, and so it is done publicly. And what we discover, at least eventually when we get to heaven, is that when we do these disciplines, when we exercise self-restraint, and it's regular, it's periodic, it's self-imposed, but it's voluntary, and it's for the purpose of spiritual life, we're going to radiate grace out to other people. We may end up discovering that the very desire to do it ourselves probably came from other people who are praying and fasting for us. 
You know, but when the didache declares that we bless those who curse us, when we pray for our enemies, when we fast for those who persecute us, that gives us an answer to the question of how in the early church did the Christian faith conquer the Roman Empire? Talk yep. about a culture of death. It was decadent. It was self-indulgent. There were all kinds of moral and sexual, you know, impurities rampant and all of that. But again, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so if we can let the light shine, the light of Christ in our lives, and again, get it beyond the social media, get it beyond the comm boxes on Facebook, get it beyond Twitter, get it beyond TV, get it beyond talk, but to really put our faith into practice, I think the actions of fasting and abstinence are gonna speak louder than the words. Well, one of the things we have to do is start fasting from our conversation because we are running out of time. Alas. <laughs> but again, it's called The Lenten Cookbook by David Geiser with essays by Scott Hahn. And you can get this at EWTNRC.com where it is item number 4696. Again, Scott, thank you so much for being with us. May the Lord bless you and all all of our viewers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, you can be here and all our other shows can be here because you viewers make it possible. Keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you.